have a Bible, let's open up to Romans chapter 11. We'll begin actually at the very end of chapter 10, but if you get to chapter 11 and look up one verse, you'll be in the right place. Uh, we are at the conclusion of what is this trilogy in the middle of Romans uh, uh, about salvation. And we talked last week about how uh, this section is a study on salvation. The, the word for that is soteriology. Soter is the Greek word for salvation or being made well, being made whole. Ology is the study of. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a, 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 an appendix or is a kind of a, a footnote in the book of Romans about salvation. Paul has told us through chapter 1, verse 8 about why we need to be saved, how we can be saved, and what is true about us now that we are saved. And he's going to extend that conversation once we get to chapter 12. But in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he has talked about the nature of salvation, uh, what we don't really understand uh, from, from just hearing the gospel, what's going on behind the scenes, and what goes on in our own hearts. So we have studied chapter 9, which is about God's sovereignty, uh, how God is the one who initiates the entire process. God is the one who owns the process, who uh, inspires us and allows us to even get close to him. Uh, but we also looked at the other side of the coin, which is our responsibility. It is God who uh, initiates, but it's our response as well, that uh, responsibility that allows us to receive in full uh, the gift of salvation. Uh, now, this tangent was prompted by, if you'll remember, back in chapter 9, uh, around the subject of Israel, the nation of Israel. Uh, Paul taught in Romans 8 that we are the elect of God. We are uh, the, the chosen of God. We are loved by God. We are heirs of God. And all those things were previously exclusively given to the Jews and promised to the Jews. But Paul says now that all Christians uh, under Christ, we all have those promises. So it prompted a conversation with Paul or, or to, to the church uh, about Israel. And Paul breaks this down for us. And in the process, he lets us know how God has always saved people and how God will always save people. And, and he specifically talked about Israel uh, for a little while back in chapter nine. And, and he talked about how even though God chose Israel as a whole, there were plenty within Israel that did not believe and did not receive. And he makes a distinction about the physical nation of Israel and the covenant keepers within Israel. Uh, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a correlation within the church as well, if you really think about it. But God chose Israel to be his, uh, to be his people, to be the vessel that through, through which he uh, you know, made his presence known in the world, through which he would change the world. God used Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, he used a lot more people that did not serve him than did. As in all the kings of Israel, most of them were not good people. Most of them were not godly kings. If you read through first and second, Kings and Chronicles, you'll hear that, that, that phrase again and again. So-and-so did not do what David did. They did not serve the Lord like David, their father or ancestor did. Yet, even though they did not serve God, God still used them because they were his chosen people. So there's a distinction in Romans 9, 10 and 11, as Paul talks about Israel uh, with the nation of Israel and the covenant keepers within Israel, how the nation itself, though they were chosen, didn't mean they were automatically saved, but the covenant keepers, the ones who trusted God, 
They were the ones that were truly saved. And he talks about the promise that he made to Abraham, uh, how that was always with regard to those that would believe in him. That Abraham was not saved just because God chose him, but Abraham trusted God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And that's why the story goes that Ishmael was rejected, but Isaac was chosen. Esau was rejected, but Jacob was chosen. And, And as the story goes on, there's always some that believe and there's some that do not believe. And God kept his promise to Israel as a whole, but his covenant keepers were the ones that uh, were truly blessed and were truly saved. It was more than just about land. God's full and final plan was always not about boundaries or borders. It was bigger than a single nation. And, And if we pay attention to anything in the Old Testament, pay attention to those that trusted God in personal faith. They are the ones that point to what we receive in the New Testament. And that's why the language shifts in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's God so loved Israel. But in the New Testament, it's God so loved the world. In the Old Covenant, it was God promising Israel salvation. But in the New Covenant, it's God promising the world. So there was always to be a transition from one nation to all nations, from one people to all people. However, God did intend on keeping his promise to corporate, to national Israel, to a nation, the physical kingdom, though the plan was paused. The plan was paused in the New Testament age, but we'll see how that plan is going to be unpaused in the future. Now, Paul uses this opportunity of discussing Israel uh, to get into greater detail about the nature and the method of salvation, which is really the point of these chapters. In chapter 9, Paul made it clear that God was not surprised that many or most of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus in the same way that he isn't surprised that many or most uh, of Israel hadn't been covenant keepers through the ages. Paul tells us that and tells about how God was always sovereign in his selection. And he made this point, and and this is really the whole, his his goal that, uh, that we would receive from that chapter, from those studies, that God, those who reject God are not signs that his power is limited or faulty, that even though there are plenty in most of the Jews in the Old Testament and the New Testament era, even those that, though that most of the Jewish people did not trust God for salvation were not covenant keepers, that's not a sign that God was somehow limited or faulty in his power, but it was rather that his mercy on those who were saved would shine all the more. And this is a perspective that we as Christians should always have, that there were some within Israel that thought salvation was a right they were owed. And if Jesus was in fact God's way, why then were there some that were not responding to him? And Paul makes it clear that those that uh, had not responded to God were not a sign that God had failed, but rather that they had not put their faith in what God had offered them. And, and, And Paul He is a Jew, so he could talk to them in a very stern and a very uh, forthright way. Paul makes it very clear, and I think we need to hear this as church members. Salvation is not a right. Salvation is not something that we're owed. We're not owed anything from God. Salvation is a privilege. God chooses to show us mercy. It's God's choice that saves us. That was true for Israel. It's true for us. But if, in fact, there are those who do not get saved, and this may be uncomfortable for us to hear, but it's true, and the Bible teaches it over and over again. Those that do not get saved, it will be God's choice to show them wrath. 
And that's what Romans 9 really concluded with, that God endures with vessels of wrath so that his mercy to those that are saved might be all the more powerful and uh, bold. If there are those who do not get get saved, it is God's choice to show them wrath. The, The point is that God is sovereign. He owns every decision that he makes. He is sovereign over every soul, whether they believe or not. No one stumbles past him. This isn't meant to cause us to be arrogant if we are saved. It's not meant to discourage the Great Commission as, oh, well, if they didn't get saved, I guess that was God's plan. It's simply supposed to give us confidence that God is in control of what seems out of our control. And then we got to Romans 10. And Romans 10 turns the tables and focuses on what we should focus on. And it focuses on what we have control of and what we are responsible for. Romans 9 says God's in control, don't worry. But Romans 10 says, but here's what you need to focus on as a believer and as a member of the church, that you were saved because you called on the name of the Lord. And it was your response that got you in. And it's the rest of the world's response that will get them in. So as a recipient of God's mercy, we must proclaim that he gives mercy to all. So from our perspective, we make a choice and we have ample opportunity to respond to God. And our message to the world is that God is a merciful God. And that if you call on his name, he will respond. Again, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but Romans 9 is, is often misused by Reformed Christians and, and capital R Reformed people in certain traditions. It's used by Calvinists to, to discourage the Great Commission, to say, well, God already knows, so what are we even messing with or what do we even matter? That's not the point of Romans 9. The point of Romans 9 is to make us have confidence that God is sovereign. God is in control. If not for him, we wouldn't even have a chance. And Romans 10 turns right at us and says, but here's what you should do. Call on his name. He will not turn away anyone that asks for salvation. Call out for him. He will never turn you away. All that God bring, Jesus brings to God, he will accept and no one can remove you from his hand. So Romans 10 says that it is an open door and we have a responsibility. And then he says to us in the middle of, toward the end of of chapter 10, that we are to be preachers of the gospel and that we are to make the word of God known so that others may call on his name. And here's, I think, what we gain in the moral of that chapter and what we gain from that chapter is we do not know where his mercy is or isn't, will be or won't be. Come on, some of us think we're really spiritual and we can detect and we understand everything that God's up to. We should not fool ourselves. We do not know where God's mercy is or isn't and we will not know where it will be or won't be. Our job is if we have received mercy is proclaim that salvation is from the Lord. Let us never step into the shoes of God. That's a dangerous place to be for people like us who are so far from being God. Romans 9 is not an invitation to start pulling the triggers and pulling the levers. It's reminding us that God's the one in control. Let him be in control. What are we able to do? Proclaim that salvation is from the Lord. So if you ever hear somebody preach Romans 9, but they don't preach Romans 10, they're leaving something out. And if you ever hear somebody preach Romans 10 and not remind remind you of Romans 9, they're leaving something out. They work together. So as for us, we find what Paul said in 1 Corinthians to be helpful. 
Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Romans 10 says we should go out and proclaim that salvation is from the Lord, but we are not the one who saves people. And if people don't respond to us, that's not a sign that we aren't doing our job. It's a sign that we should let God do his job. So have faith in the God of Romans 9, but be faithful to the commandment of Romans 10. So that is what we find ourselves, so that is what we, we who find ourselves blessed and fortunate to be a part of the church must do. But I want you to look at how Romans 10 ends as Paul talks about how Israel has not responded to God. He makes it clear, God gave them a chance to respond and they didn't. He's talking about first century Israel. They did not respond to God. He turned to the Gentiles. But look at what Romans 10 verse 21 says. To Israel, he says, as in still says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now we might wanna focus on the disobedient and contrary, but what is God's message to those that are disobedient and contrary? All day long, I stretch out my hands towards you. Do you see that? What is God's posture and what is God's heart towards those that are disobedient and contrary? He stretches his hands out towards them. So here's something I think that needs to be addressed because we often get confused about and have questions about what our purpose is as the church and as church members, as Christians on mission. Now, you might think the New Testament's confusing on this, but I think the New Testament's actually very clear on this. And this will echo something we talked about a few nights ago, but I think this is important and it really fits in line with where we're going tonight. As God reaches out to those that are disobedient and contrary, as we as the church have been called to be on mission, knowing that God's the one that does all the work anyway, here's what we should do. Here's who we should be as the church. The church is supposed to be as gracious and as accepting as Jesus was in his ministry. That's how we do what God has done and is doing and will always do. Now, I know there's a lot of people that raise their hand and say, what about this and what about that? And what do you mean as gracious as as accepting? Here's what I mean. Jesus was gracious and accepting to all people. All people. And people say, well, what about sin? Sin put him on a cross and killed him. He knew good and well what sin was capable of doing. It killed him. He suffered under its wrath. And he still sat down and had dinner with sinners and all the likes. So as a church, What is our job? What are we, the body of Christ, supposed to do? Be as gracious and as accepting as Jesus was. And if you want an example of how gracious and accepting Jesus was, just open up a page in the Gospels, you'll find plenty. At the same time, and this isn't contradictory, the church is to hold its own to the highest account and lead from a place of faithfulness and integrity. Now, Again, how gracious was Jesus? He told the Pharisees wanting to stone the woman, caught in adultery, you who are without sin, you throw the first rock. And he told her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin 
no more. But he didn't say, but if you sin again, I'll come at you with the rock. He didn't say, but I'm gonna check on you tomorrow. And if you've sinned one more time, I'll bring you right back here and stone you myself. He didn't do that, did he? He was gracious and accepting. He had a plan. At the same time, he told his own disciples that you are held to this standard so that you might lead from a place of integrity and faithfulness. These don't contradict, they inform each other. We as a church do not judge or pressure those who are seeking Jesus. Acts 15, Jesus' brother James says, we are not gonna make it difficult on those who are turning to Jesus. How long does it take someone to turn to Jesus? We don't know, I don't know, and no one knows. If we're being honest, all of us are still turning towards Jesus, aren't we? All of us are still turning towards him a little more every single day. So James says, it is my sentence that we do not make it difficult on those that are turning. Some turn slowly. Some are ships like the Titanic and it's hard to turn. But James says, don't make it harder. And honestly, it's hard for all of us. This will clarify some things that I think we as Christians need to hear. We do not, we do not, we do not pass judgment hastily and impatiently on those God is pursuing. And what does verse 21 tell us? Who is God pursuing? Those that are disobedient and contrary. So if God is pursuing those that are disobedient and contrary, who isn't he pursuing? We don't know who he is or isn't pursuing. So the best thing to do is we not get in the way of who he may be pursuing and who may be pursuing him. The best thing we can do is to put people in the environments where the Holy Spirit can get to their hearts and speak to them what God has spoken to us. Now, from a leadership stance, regarding who holds positions and serves the church, we hold people to their Christian expectations. That doesn't just include living a morally clean life, but it includes being loving and Christ-like in these areas. We preach against sin, not only those that the world commits, but those that we like to pretend that we don't commit, but we do. So the moral of the story, and this is important for us to get, it, get what we need to get out of tonight. Let God be God and let us follow Jesus faithfully with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. I know, I know, this is so hard. This is so difficult because the church often gets a little bit afraid of being on mission because we don't know what kind of mess it might lead us into. Jesus was not afraid of the mess and we cannot be either. And, and let me include you in, and I'm not, I don't mean this harshly, but I think it's true for me and I, it might be true for you. The reason why I get afraid of the mess, it's not because God is making me a little bit scared. It's because the devil is trying to make me like a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They were the ones afraid of the mess and I don't need to be like them and we don't need to be like them. We don't need to be afraid of the mess because it's in the mess where the Messiah does his work. So if you feel this fear, confess it to God and ask him to replace it with confidence. Romans nine taught us God is sovereign. We can trust him. Romans 10 taught us that anybody can be saved. Anybody, what does it say? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we cannot at all hinder someone from being in that opportune position to call on his name. We call on him, we must lead others to call on him. And, and Romans 11 is going to zoom in on, again, on focusing on God. And it's gonna zoom in on God's grace and how he alone elects us and saves us. Now, and it's gonna show us how even our place in the church is something that we should never take for granted, but forever be grateful for and motivated by. 
Now, Paul begins chapter 11, still talking about Israel, but all this informs the attitude and posture that we should have before God. So listen to Paul, Romans 11, one through six, and, and, chapter, and verse six is gonna be one of the all-time important verses we ever hear. I say them, has God cast away his people? Based on verse 21, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul says, I am proof that God has reached out to the disobedient and contrary. So we can't cast away, we can't give up on a certain group of people. God, I am proof that God has not given up. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you know, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah who how he pled with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I, I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. Even so then at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What an amazing mission statement for every generation of church members. This is a promise to us. There is a remnant that's waiting to hear from us. If there was not a remnant, get this, if there was not a remnant, we would not be here. Do you understand that? If there was not a remnant waiting to hear the gospel from the church, there would be no church. We're not here at our leisure. We're here on mission. Don't forget that. We'll come back to that later. Verse six. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Man, what a powerful verse. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So I got it. This is so good. This is a passage that you probably have heard preached you probably can count on your hands how many times you've heard this preach. That's how ignored it is, but it's so rich. So let's try to get all we can out of it. The proof of God's commitment to Israel is that he is persistently pursuing Israel as Paul says, I am an example of his persistent pursuit. You can't argue with that. Verse 21 makes it clear. He is reaching out all day long. I think the same thing should characterize the church in its interactions with the world. Let me, let me say this again. Read Acts chapter two, three, and four. Peter is in the streets of Jerusalem. He is preaching to the very people that voted yes to killing Jesus. When he says, you killed him, he was literally saying, you killed him. You Sadducee, you Pharisee, you council member, you Sanhedrin member, you know, Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, the, 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 the lead priest, you men, you killed the author of life. So when Peter says, you killed him, he's literally talking to the people that shout, shouted crucify him. And if God's first mission were to the people that literally hung his son on a cross, I mean, what, is, what does that say about our attitude towards sinners? What does that say about God's heart towards sinners? Pretty incredible, isn't it? His first mission was to the very people who literally still had the blood of Jesus on their hands. And in, in, in the gospels, they literally say, let his blood be on our hands. They're proud of it. They're boasting about it. They're defiant about it. And even later on in Acts, the very people that God pursues, 
are the people with the bloodiest of hands, the man writing this book, right? We'll get to him in a minute. Has God rejected those that are lost? By no means his hand is reaching out for them. You know, I think this is so encouraging for the church to hear because we can get so discouraged. And so many people wearing microphones like me make it, make us, make it out like we're just holding out to the end. I mean, what good do we have? We don't have much. We're just hanging on. We have a purpose, church. And it starts by remembering how we got here ourselves. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm proof that God has reached out to the Jews. But let's apply it to our situation. What's the proof that God is still reaching out to sinners, that God still saves sinners? Look around. Look in the mirror. That's proof. If this was our message, oh my, oh my goodness, how much more appealing would we be to the world, to the lost? How much more honest would our testimonies be if we preached that we are here by the grace of God, the grace of God alone? If instead of saying, well, I've done this and I do that, I'm the Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg, you've probably, heard, if you heard his voice, you'd know who I'm talking about. Powerful preacher. Alistair preaches about this very subject so passionately and so powerfully. Uh, Alistair preaches that if our testimonies begin in the first person, we're being totally dishonest and nobody wants to hear about that. If our testimonies are, well, how did you get saved? Well, I did this and I do that. I believe this and I prayed that. I surrendered. I started and I stopped. If our testimonies begin with I, we're lying to people and we're harming people if that's the way we're projecting salvation to be accomplished or achieved. Our testimonies should begin in the third person that he saved me. The old hymn, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. You know what nothing means? Nothing. You know, why am I so passionate about this? I'm passionate about this because I am the very most likely candidate to use I, 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 I all the time when somebody says, hey, how'd you get in? I am the prime candidate to turn into someone that says I, not he. So I preach this for myself, but I preach this to us because this is, this is how we remain at the fount of God's mercy and grace. I preach this, the Bible preaches this so much because this is everything. If we get this wrong, what are we even doing? A few weeks ago with the story of Samson, how did Samson get back with God? Because the hair on his head started growing. And the last time I checked, no, we can't make that happen on our own, can we? If we could, wow, we'd all, you know, I know I'm younger, I haven't went through some of that stuff, but hey, if we could, we'd all have the, the, the color that we want and the length that we want and the health, right? Samson was at the mercy of God making it grow back. The point is, God came to Samson. Samson did not go back to God. Yeah, Samson woke up to God, but that was only after God revived him. So think about the thief on the cross. How did he get saved? Did he get baptized? Did he tithe? Did he attend church? Did he serve faithfully year after year? This is the line from Alistair's sermon that gets me every time I hear it. He imagines the thief entering heaven and all the people at the gate saying, how did you get here? 
And the thief would have responded, the man on the middle cross said, I could come. That's how he got in. Listen, should you tithe? Should you be baptized? Should you join the church? Should you serve? Of course you should. If you, should, if you don't, hey, there's no excuse as a Christian on this side of the cross. But how did he get in? Somebody said he could go in. How important it is for us to hear this church. It's so important that we stay at this fountain of grace. The Apostle Paul is making this kind of statement here. The Jews were never going to be saved because of their heritage or accomplishments, but they were never going to be rejected on the basis of their initial rebellion. God was still reaching out to them. Listen to Paul's testimony. And there's some things in Paul's testimony that I want to raise my hand and say, Paul, you don't really mean that, do you? You don't really mean that, do you? You don't really believe that, do you? And he says, he would say, absolutely, I do. He wrote to young Timothy, who was about to pastor his first church. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Whoa, 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 Paul. You willingly hunted down Christians, drugged them out of their homes, put them in prison, and killed them. You stoned Stephen willingly. Nobody made you do that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, even though they knew what they were doing. Again, this isn't excusing our sin, but this is God talking. This is Paul with the inspiration of God talking, acted ignorantly. You know what this tells me? Unbelief will make you do some ignorant things. Unbelief will make you do some things that you, people would wonder, why would you do that? Why would someone defy the very laws of God? And, and let's just be honest with our world today. This month, you're going to be surrounded by reminders of people that are living lifestyles that are not the way God intended. That's what this month's all about, right? The world celebrates it. Is that, a, is that to make us angry or rageful or vengeful or judgmental? Here's what Paul says. I'm a murderer. I'm a blasphemer. Can you get any worse than blasphemy? I mean, not in the Old Testament, not in the New, what did Jesus say? Blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin? I mean, this is Paul talking, not me. So Paul says, hey, if there's anybody that ever committed that, it was me. And somehow, some way, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me as in it took a whole lot. But there was as much as I needed. Listen, this is the same man that back in Romans 6 said that if you are still a slave to sin as a Christian, you are disobedient to God. This is the same man that makes it very clear that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the same man that makes it very clear there's a heaven and there's a hell and there are saved and there are lost. And yet he says of himself, it's the grace of God that overflowed for me and saved me. And who are we to say that God can't do the same for somebody else? And who are we to say that we got in any other way? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He says, hey, I'm the number one. Paul says, well, you'd say, Paul, Paul, you're not that bad. I mean, yeah, you're pretty bad. You killed Christians. You stoned Stephen. You murdered people. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe you're pretty bad, but you're not, you're not a, a, a genocide dictator. You're, you're not, you know, one of those categories that we would put people in. I mean, Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I'm the worst, if you ask me. But I received 
mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an examples. Example, to those who were to believe, as in those who are not yet saved. What if we had this attitude towards lost people instead of bulldozing them with judgment before they ever got a chance to hear the gospel sincerely? Church, our world today has plenty wrong with it. Believe me. There is rampant sin on every level and in every, of every kind. But our witness to the world isn't straightened up before it's too late. Our witness to the world is our own testimony, how we are examples of the mercy of God. So let us make it clear that God's placement of us in the church is a product of his patience towards us and with us. Likewise, let us be patient with others so that God might work on their heart. Because back in chapter 10, verse 17, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if the church isn't preaching the word of God, nobody else is going to. So let's preach the right message. Let's be examples of the perfect patience of Jesus. Paul references Elijah. Now, you know the story of Elijah. Elijah was a mighty man of God called fire down from heaven, defeated the prophets of Baal, yet the queen of Baal, the queen of the prophets, Jezebel, sent a letter to Elijah the next day and said, I'm going to kill you. Whether, whether it's all that I've got, I've got to do everything I've got to do to kill you. I'm going to find you and kill you. And Elijah gets depressed and Elijah goes and prays to die. And then he goes to Mount Sinai because he thinks I'm the only one left. And if God, if God really loves me, then he's going to, you know, rapture me or he's going to prove to me that he, that, that he hasn't forgotten about me. And Elijah gets really haughty and self-righteous. And he says, God, there's nobody but me. What's wrong with you, God? I mean, I'm the only one left. And Elijah, God says to Elijah, do you not know there are 7,000 people that, I'm, that I want to save through your ministry? God even knew the number. God said, Elijah, do you not know? I've saved you by my mercy and I'm gonna save the rest of these people with the same mercy. I need you to be my witness and I don't need you to have this kind of attitude. I need you to go and show them that the same mercy can save them. All this brings us to verse six. And again, verse, verse five, it says, there's a, re, a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse six, if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise grace would not be grace. If you don't, if you wanna memorize a new verse, pick this one, memorize it, write it down. This verse is twofold in its power. It's encouraging and it's uplifting if you're deep in sin and shame. Because if it's by grace, it's by grace. And even if you've worked your way all the way to the edge of hell, that there's grace for you. So if you've got somebody in your life that they are as sinful and shameful as it can get and they, they know about it or they don't know it or they are aware, well aware of it, they won't come to church because they feel so much shame or maybe they won't come to church because they are so defiant in their sin. I don't know, this is hope for them. Because the, if there's breath of life in them, it is grace that saves. And if it's grace, then it's not about works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. But at the same time, this is sobering and humbling if we are proud and self-righteous. Because if we think that we bring anything to God, then we should be humbled and sobered up because we bring nothing. We get saved, we are saved, and we will always be saved by grace. 
How did you get saved? By grace. Why am I saved right now, this minute? By grace. How will I be saved tomorrow if I do or I don't do this or that? By grace, you get and are and will be saved. And, and church, you know, this, to, to a very religious person, this might feel like somebody's got, may, may feel like God is trying to really shake you up, but I think this is so relieving because it takes the pressure off of your shoulders. And it also wipes your eyes clean because maybe instead of seeing red, you start seeing the grace of God that saved you and can save others. And it makes this world a whole lot more, I think, easy to live in because you realize it's grace that saves any of us. We don't earn it, we can't fail it, and we never outpace it. How did you get saved? You didn't earn it. And, and, and can you lose it? No, because it's grace. Grace that, it, that is earnable or that is losable is not grace. You never outgrow it. Grace would not be grace if it was any other way. Now, surprisingly, this is consistent. The Bible teaches this message from front to back. Check out Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the the Lord has brought me into this place. God told the Jews, do not say that you did anything. I did it. Don't put that pressure on yourself. And don't lose access to the fountain of my grace like you're about to. And we all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, this might help you understand how the mind of a pastor works. And, and th- hopefully you don't ever have to have a mind of a pastor. This is why I always err on the side of grace. When I'm looking at the different options to take, I'm always gonna go, on the side of grace. There would never be a self-righteous threat in the church if pastors hadn't gotten off track and erred on the side of works some time ago. It's easy, it's so easy to grip the pulpit and say it's grace plus. It's so easy and tempting. But anyone that does that is blaspheming the message of salvation. Now, don't mishear me. I don't think you have, but don't mishear me. Are Christians expected to obey and honor God? Yes. But if we ever base our salvation on anything other than the grace of God, we are disobeying and dishonoring God from that point. So the best way to toe this line is a verse that I was thinking about in in prelude to this message is Matthew 5, verse 3, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Be humble, don't extol don't, don't boast, extol God's grace. Privately and quietly live as godly of a life that you can. And when you observe people in sin, intercede for them that they may be saved. I learned a long time ago. I've done it the wrong way. I've learned a long time ago, if my initial reaction to somebody that's in sin is not on my face before God crying for them and praying for them for many, many days, then I'm doing it the wrong way. If my initial reaction to sin is let me get a hold of them. I don't care about them. I want them to be what I want them to be, but I don't care about their heart and their soul because I think somehow that I'm better than them and that's not how it works. 
If you see Christians living hypocritically, suspect duplicity within professing Christians, love them anyway, keep them, keep being humble. And because, because your wrath and your anger is never gonna change someone in the first place. I've learned this the hard way. Me being angry at someone's sin is not gonna change them. James, the brother of Jesus, the, rat, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't. If you're really burdened for someone, pray for them and ask God to change them. But don't get so worked up that it makes you arrogant and hateful. It'll ruin your testimony. And it's not worth it. So, that grace may be grace. Let God be God. Let us follow Jesus faithfully and let grace do what only grace can do. In closing, in verse seven, Paul talks about how those that rejected Jesus within Israel only hurt themselves, but he shows how God responded and in turn teaches us how we should respond to similar scenarios. Look at verse seven through 11. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. The rest were blinded. Just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, ears that should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare of a trap and stumbling block and recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow, their, bow down their back all, always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So when God left the corporate nation of Israel and turned to the Gentiles and started the church, his ambition was always so that he might wake them up. So on this notion, the best way to reach those that are far from God is to be as close to God as you can be and let his grace shine through you. That's what God is teaching the church here. He's trying to make the Gentiles, don't look at the Jews condescendingly. Don't look at the Jews arrogantly. Don't look at them as if you're better than them. Because it used to be reversed. Be genuine, be delightful. God will get through to people in ways that we can't. Verses that we look at all the time as, as, as church members. John 13, 34, 35, you know that verse. Jesus says, by this they'll know that you're mine. If you love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not boastful or hateful or arrogant or rude or rough, but it's kind and patient. It's genuine. 1 John 4, 12 says, the closest some people will ever get to God is when they're around Christians that love them. <laughs> Maybe some people will never get close to God because they're never around Christians that love them. Now, this is not tonight's study, but verses 13 through 24, we'll study this another time. It's a prophetic study, but the point of it is God says to the church, Paul says to the Gentiles, Gentiles, the reason you're even in is because God grafted you in. You were never even a part of this story. So all salvation is by grace, but church, we only ever got close to God because even more grace grafted us in in the place of Israel temporarily. So church, our inclusion in the family of God is entirely a result of grace upon grace upon grace. All salvation is by grace, but we should by all means know 
that it's the kindness of God that even got us in the proximity of salvation. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So while we are here, while we are on mission, our job is to proclaim the gospel. Why is God allowing us to have this opportunity on the stage? Why do we even get this chance to have a starring role in a story that's not even about us? so that we might be examples of the grace and mercy of God. Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Until it comes, there's a reason to get up every day and preach a gospel of grace. When our time is done, God will turn back to Israel to conclude this age. He will usher in a new and better age. There will be a revival in our world one day where the Jews wake up to the Messiah that they missed originally. Now, there are some that might would think, well, that's not fair. I mean, are we as Christians, we went through all this and at the end of this whole age, it's gonna, we're gonna be taken out or we're gonna be put to the side and it's gonna turn. Why would that be fair? Jesus told a parable one time. You can look at it at your own time sometime, but Matthew 20, Jesus told this parable about this, uh, uh, this builder who was looking for laborers and at the third hour in the morning, he needed more laborers. So he went out and he said, hey, I'll give you this much money if you come and work for me. And then the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the 11th hour, he kept going out and hiring more people. And he kept telling him, hey, you know, I'll, I'll pay you this much, I'll pay you this much. And the people that walked in at the last hour of the day, he said, I'll pay you this much. And at the end of the, at the, end of the day, he paid them all the same amount of money. And the people that worked for you know, eight hours and five hours and four hours, they all got jealous of the people that worked for half an hour. And the master looked at them and he said, can I not do what I want to do with my own money? You were hired by my kindness and by my grace. Are you disappointed that you served me longer than others did? Funny how flesh rises up in the weirdest and inappropriate of circumstances, but right? Hired by mercy and grace. Wrapping up 32 to 36. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So God looks at the disobedient as an opportunity to give mercy to people. He doesn't delight in sin, but he delights in mercy on sinners. All the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to him? Of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You know what we've learned tonight? We don't know the half of how God's mind works. But we know one thing. We are in his kingdom and in his family by grace and grace alone. What if we started seeing ourselves through that grace? We would not bear the shame and guilt that we bear. We would not feel so insecure and worried as we do. We would love people. We would forgive people. We would accept people. We would go out and preach the gospel to people. We'd be happier we'd be relieved, we'd be a more worshipful people, we'd be more satisfied people. From him, 
through him and unto him are all things. Is this true about us? Is this the story that we tell, the service that we live? How rich and awesome is the mercy of God, how wonderful it is toward us and how powerful it can be through us if we keep telling this amazing story. It's to this end that we have been saved that we might tell the story of God's amazing grace. Grace upon grace. What an awesome gift. How privileged we are to have it. How grateful I am to have it. But how much of a, of a mission we have to go and tell the world about it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of your grace. Lord, I pray for somebody tonight that is just so caught up in what they do and what they've done and they've been trying to earn your approval for so long. Would you just relieve them of that pressure? Would you remind them that you love them like they are? It's not what they bring to you or what they don't bring to you. It's them. You love them. Your grace is sufficient for them. Would you remind that one that feels like they don't have anything to bring you and they feel like their shame is so great, would you remind them that you love them and you've met them where they're at? Lord, would you encourage that one that has loved ones that are just constantly living lives that are unbecoming to you and unbecoming for Christians and yet they just don't know how to respond to them? Would you help us see them with the eyes of grace? And would you help us love them anyway? And would you help us not give up on them? Would you help us see a world that is hurting through the eyes of grace? And would you help us continue to preach the message of grace? And that as you see sinners, help us see sinners and help us preach the gospel again and again and again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. We thank you for your amazing grace. Amen.